all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 356 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Porsche episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that Porsche developed a sports car first produced back in 1948 and 49 by an Austrian company, then by the German company in 1950-1965, and it was Porsche's first production automobile. That Porsche was Porsche 356. And with that wonderful little bit of sports car knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Now, were you one of those kids growing up who really wanted a Porsche or Corvette or one of those fancy slick-looking fast cars? I sure was. I wanted the Porsche 911 Turbo, and I wanted the really cool, like, 84, 85 Corvette because the body style was amazing. Unfortunately, the engines in those years were pretty terrible. But, man, did those cars look cool. I wanted a Prowler. Do you remember prowlers i mean Um, those were like the weird looking cars from the late 90s early 2000s that just really didn't make any sense at all but they were just kind of cool looking uh oh yeah it was uh, yeah it was those old plymouth it was originally a concept car that was so cool looking that they managed to do some production runs of them I remember those. They were the ones that had the independent suspension suspension on the outside of the front um of the front axle. Kind of like um mixing the twenties and the thirties with the two thousands. It was uh yeah, I mean, I don't know. They look cool. I mean, I wouldn't really want to be driving over rocky terrain in that car. <laughs> People probably realize this, which is why um, it was only produced from like 1997 to 2002-ish. So, yeah, my my love for the Plymouth Prowler didn't really last too long. But I had like a Hot Wheels car of a Plymouth Prowler. And thinking about it, I was, what, seven, nine, ten years old? So um, that was like my favorite Hot Wheel car. It was like a cool purple color, too. So... I mean, did did your evolution of love for this vehicle ever change? And then you eventually decided that no, I want something else. Or, I mean, if you could get your hands on one, would you um, would you get one? Well, no, I don't think so because it's one of those cars that you just want to show off. It, I mean, I wouldn't want to just drive it to the grocery store or just drive it about town. I mean, maybe driving it around town, drive it down to Malibu, you know, some little coastal drives might be pretty cool. Uh, but nowadays, it's just like a classic Cadillac is something that I would love to have. Um, yeah, I just love the, the topless Cadillacs. Yeah, so I grew up with my grandfather that had a Cadillac DeVille and he always had a Cadillac up until the mid-2000s when he got rid of his, uh, I think he got in a bad car accident, totaled his Cadillac, and decided to get a Dodge Charger instead. So for the last, like, seven, eight years of his life, he had a kick-ass Dodge Charger. I mean, it was a newer Dodge Charger, but it still looked pretty cool, and it retained that neat, uh, old-school-looking uh, 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 hot rod kind of look to it. But... Yeah, I mean, it, it it evolved once I realized the importance of, you know, you're spending a lot of money on this cool-looking car. I mean, you have to do more than just drive around town in it. So then I thought, you know, the Cadillac, a Cadillac would be nice. So I guess that was my evolution. I mean, nowadays I just think about, like, Subarus, you know, stuff I can put a child in. Um, something comfortable for me and the wife to go camping. You know, where am I going to put my camping gear? So a hatchback, and a hatchback doesn't really scream sexy. There's a little bit of okay. a 
de-evolution when it comes to maturity and age. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I don't know. I, I still, even to this day, I, I think if I could get any car from my air quotes youth, I would still do the uh, get a 2000 Camaro Z28 T-top and then supercharge it. I wonder what like the coolest car from the year of my birth was. Oh, the Saab 9000 Turbo oh, was God. apparently one of the coolest looking cars or the coolest car uh, back in that day. I never liked the way Saabs looked. I, I don't know. It just, it visually, it never did anything for me. I always thought they looked weird. Um, I just didn't like the double A in, in its name. I hated that. <laughs> it took me way That's... too long to know how to pronounce that word. Almost as long as uh, S-E-A-N is still pronounced Sean. Sean Connery, not Scene Connery. <laughs> that, I believe, goes back to the Gaelic uh, of it, not because they were out to annoy you. But, I mean... You could look at it that way, too. That's fine. Yeah, uh, the jury's still out on that, I suppose. So, I understand we have some news to do. Would you like to jump into it? We must. Well, then, all right, let's do it, folks. It's the news! And first up from me, let's see here. We're going to start light, then deep, then dig deep. I'm going to go with Deadline.com by way of Anthony D'Alessandro. It turns out that Fantastic Beasts 3 is actually moving forward with a spring 2020 start. Uh, turns out that the Lolly character Jessica Williams played is going to have a large part in this um particular film which will be set in brazil apparently um also uh set to return uh eddie redmayne jude law and johnny depp um also looks like ezra miller's coming back allison sudal and dan fogler as well as katherine waterston um yeah the david yates is also coming back as well as David Heyman, J.K. Rowling, Steve Close, Lionel Wigram, and Tim Lewis. So it seems like the gang's all back, and maybe they'll make a better movie this time. I don't know. You liked the uh, last one, though. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. You totally did. You you thought, I remember you saying that you liked it. Uh, one of the reasons why you liked it was that it was a more mature a uh, darker take on uh on stories based in this world. Hang on. <laughs> I don't remember liking it. Let's see. I didn't like it. I fell asleep. You gave it a 3 and I gave it a 3. I would not say loved it. Either one of us. Yeah, but I remember liking it barely well enough, but considering the first one was a 3.75 from both of us, the second one was definitely a dip in quality. Well, fine. A three still means you liked it. I don't even know why I gave it a three if I fell asleep, but I guess there's a fault fault in the system. I'm going to go on a limb and say it just hasn't aged well in our minds. So my kids have been begging me to get that movie. I guess I will go ahead and get the movie. Um... Now I'm going to have to go and get the movie so that I can check it out and see um, if I remember it properly, because clearly we don't remember it properly. Um, but at any rate, yeah, they're looking to have this open on November 12th, 2021. And that was uh, that was pretty much all I wanted to say. Um about that, did you have any comments, or did we just go ahead and talk about that article? <laughs> I don't care about. I feel like I feel like we 
talked about the article. Okay, so if you care, <laughs> now you know it's in production. Uh, effective spring of next year. Looking for a November of 2021 release. And it looks like the gang's all back. Well, it's David um, Yates. I mean, David Yates has directed... I mean... So far, all of the Fantastic Beasts movies, or Fantastic Be- yeah, Be- yeah, Beasts, plural, Beasts. Um, and he directed, like, the last, like, four or five Harry Potter movies. It's about time we bring in a fresh perspective, somebody different, to give us another uh, take on this world. And that's saying something, because... So far, the first two Fantastic Beasts movies are set in two di- totally different uh, places. The first one was New York, and the second was Paris, if I remember correctly. So, I, I mean, we it needs another fresh pair of eyes, you know, to give us something that at least feels a little bit different, but still retains some of that Harry Potter world charm. And, you know, I guess that's really much the uh, pretty much the crux of it and why i'm not super jazzed with this one well i will okay so i went and double checked it's the last four so he did five six and then seven part one and two and then he's done these now three movies or will have done the third movie um i really just think it's because he was able to turn it around after four because i'm pretty sure after goblet of fire i'm fairly certain people were about ready to revolt and he kind of salvaged the Harry Potter series. And so that just created a good working relationship for him. And whether or not we are happy about it, the series is just making money hand over fist. So there's not really any reason from their end, from a business perspective to interrupt that stream by having Yates not be the guy. Well, the so. last one dipped a little bit in popular- popularity. I mean, it made money at the box office, but it was not the big box office uh, draw that uh, that I think the studio was expecting. So I think a lot of people were kind of expecting a, a little bit of a change, but I guess not. We'll see. Yeah, it looks like the budget for the first Fantastic Beasts was approximately 175 to $200 million, made $814 million. And then... Uh, Crimes of Grindelwald was two hundred million, and then six six hundred and fifty three million. So, yeah, a little dip, but um, yeah, I guess we'll see how it all turns out. But yeah, what do you got for us, sir? First up from Variety dot com: Delta restoring same sex love scenes to Booksmart and Rocket Man, written by Dave McNary, and this was posted on November first. A little bit of backstory: Olivia Wilde took to social media sometime last week. Uh, complaining about her film, which Delta was, you know, had had the option to watch her film Booksmart during a flight, and she decided to watch it, and she just went off on how edited the film was. Uh, they could say fuck, men could talk about fucking women, but they were not allowed to say vagina. Uh, they could say fuck, but they couldn't say vagina, even if vagina was right after fuck. You know, they couldn't still couldn't say it. Uh, also, two women that were passionately kissing could not be shown, as well as I believe it was consensual lovemaking between two women uh, that was not able to be shown as well, according to Delta. So this is pretty much Delta's response. Again, via Variety, Delta will restore same-sex love scenes to its in-flight versions of the 2019 movies Booksmart and Rocketman. The airline said Friday that it was provided an edited version of Booksmart without realizing the version it was showing on flights omitted key same-sex love scenes involving its lead characters, saying, quote, We are immediately putting a new process in place for managing content available through Delta's in-flight entertainment, end quote. Spokeswoman Emma Protis told Variety, She said, quote, studios often provide videos in two forms, a theatrical, original version, and an edited version. We selected the edited version and now realize content well within our guidelines was unnecessarily excluded from both films. We are working to make sure this doesn't happen again, end quote. Quote, the studio has agreed to provide a special Delta edit that retains the 
LGBTQ plus love scenes in both Rocketman and Booksmart that will be on our flights as soon as possible. Currently, we have Gentleman Jack, Imagine Me and You, and Moonlight on board, and countless content in the past that clearly shows it is not our practice to omit LGBTQ plus love scenes, end quote. Booksmart director Olivia Wilde and stars Caitlin Dever and Beanie Fettelstein expressed shock and disappointment on October 27th over news that an edited version of their film shown to an airline cut out the film's lesbian sex scene between Caitlin Dever and Diana Silvers, saying, quote, I don't understand it, end quote. Wilde told Variety's Mark Malkin on the red carpet at the Academy's Governor's Awards on Sunday night, quote, there's censorship, airline to airline, of films, which there must be some kind of governing board to determine. We rate it a certain way. If it's not X-rated, surely it's acceptable on an airplane, end quote. Quote, there's insane violence, of bodies being smashed in half, and yet a love scene between two women is censored from the film. It's such an integral part of this character's journey, I don't understand it, my heart just broke." End quote. News also emerged this week that gay reference has been cut from Delta's in-flight version of the Elton John biopic Rocketman, including a love scene between stars Taron Egerton and Richard Madden. Uh, and that's pretty much the whole article Article there uh, from Variety. Again, Delta restoring same-sex love scenes to Booksmart and Rocketman published on November 1st. A couple things we take from this article that we can take from this article. Um, I think social media can be absolutely dangerous when somebody like Olivia Wilde, though I understand her frustration, I can see where she's coming from, and I think she is right, content-wise, she is right, yeah, I don't think it's good just to come out and completely point your finger and blame Delta when it was the studio who had the different versions of the film and let the airline or somebody affiliated with the airline to choose which version to show. I'm uh, not make to show. Excuse me. Uh, but Matt, what do you what do you take from all this? I don't know. I guess in today's day and age, maybe I'm just old fashioned. But as long as it's um. I guess the actual sex scenes themselves on a plane, um, maybe I would cut those out just because you never know kids sitting in the aisle or sitting in the seat that could see it. But I mean, there and again, the screens are so small and relatively personalized that you could probably do that anyway if you wanted to and it wouldn't really matter. Um, but I think if you're going to cut them out, you should just be cutting them out across the board for, again, just in case you don't want younger eyes to see it um if you're only doing lgbt then yeah that's a problem absolutely and regardless of whether or not you're cutting them all out or not random references to somebody being gay that does seem kind of stupid to me especially in an elton john biopic are there people who aren't aware that he's gay i mean <laughs> it's like <laughs> i can no longer feel the love tonight damn it um i, I don't know I just, on the, on the whole, you either need to take them all out so that, you know, younger audiences don't inadvertently see it or leave them all in because the screens are small enough that it doesn't matter. Uh, that's, that's kind of where I land on it. The comments on the bottom or at the bottom of this article, are, they're pretty interesting. Uh, this one lady says, I applaud Delta Airline for their decision. Firstly, you cannot let those scenes play on an airplane because different people from different parts of the world with different beliefs and tradition travel on it. Secondly, I don't know why Delta in the first place put that kind of movie in their plane. Lesbianism is very, very wrong. I wanted to watch this movie, but after reading this article, I will never watch it. Let me ask you, Olivia, have you seen two female animals having sex? No matter how close they are, or even show any form of unusual affection? No. Since the day of creation till now, they still keep that boundary between themselves. Sometimes animals are more reasonable than humans. May God have mercy on you, Olivia. Are you serious? Are you serious? Is that a real comment? Or that was the that first comment 
on this uh, at the bottom of this article, and there's only nine comments. <laughs> oh my god! Look, I've he... I've I've sat on airplanes multiple times to watch one of the movies provided by the airline. Uh, I've seen full-blown nudity. I've seen sex scenes. I've seen gratuitous violence. I've seen movies where people get slaughtered, murdered, plane crashes, all that crap. I feel very awkward watching that, but every time I look around to make sure nobody is being offended, I don't see anybody looking at my screen, you know? Um, And if people are choosing to watch my screen, then screw them. Like, it's my screen. They have their own stuff to worry about. I'm not going to watch a movie with, with nudity and sex, knowingly watch a movie with nudity and sex or hardcore violence, if I have a kid sitting next to me. Or if there's a kid sitting uh, behind me or to the seat, uh, 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 kind of uh, you know behind the seat next to me so that they have a good view of, of my screen. You know, I'm very wary and very cautious about that stuff, as well, I'm sure, are many other people, but you should not edit content regardless just to sensitize the film. So sensitive eyes can watch it. You know, this goes back to, uh, what is that in Minnesota or somewhere up North where, there was like this mini underground video chain where they would take movies and oh the Mormon it. stuff yeah the family video stuff yeah yeah well that's not the movie you know you're making a totally different movie and it's just it's it, it's not right it's not right so that is totally cool very very good <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm happy to I'm 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 happy to acquiesce I'm happy to agree to disagree it's. It's not something, I gotta be honest with you, it's not something that's affected my life. Yeah, I mean, we're not really disagreeing either, (laughs) which is funny. Uh, You know what, I'm gonna go ahead and jump into the nitty gritty. Um, I don't know that I'm gonna get to the Leo... Leonardo DiCaprio article. I'll just sum it up real fast. IndieWire.com by way of Chris Lindahl. Uh, basically, the scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where Leonardo DiCaprio has messed up the Western shoot and he goes into the uh, trailer and he's like, you got him, Dalton, you got to get on it. You can't just keep doing this to yourself. Ta-da! Right, and he gets all mad throwing shit. Apparently, he improvised the whole thing. It wasn't really in the script. He and uh, Tarantino kind of worked it out and... Off DiCaprio went, so good on them. If you're interested, IndieWire.com, Chris Lindahl, Leonardo DiCaprio improvised Hollywood freakout scene, and Tarantino never saw him more nervous. Yeah, yada, yada. Um, so let me get into this. this is LATimes.com, um, by way of Stacy Perman. It says here, Hollywood assistants are an open revolt. Here's why. And I do, again, recommend you check this out. I'm not going to be doing the entire article. It's a pretty decent-sized article. LATimes.com, again, by way of Stacey Perman. Hollywood assistants are an open revolt. Here is why. Let me just jump, instead of trying to get into the personalized aspect of the article that's meant to draw you in, let me just dump, or uh, jump, dump, jump <laughs> right to where uh, where we get into some facts and figures. So this is probably about, let's see here, one, two, three, at least four paragraphs, five paragraphs in. Being an assistant in Hollywood has long ranked among the most thankless jobs in the industry, subjected to grueling hours, low pay, few benefits or protections, and the vagaries of monomaniacal bosses, assistants have largely toiled in silence because it was considered a golden ticket to advancement, but no longer. Now emboldened by the hashtag MeToo movement and new labor laws protecting gig workers and galvanized by social media, they are in open revolt, taking the industry to task over its questionable labor practices. More than making noise, they are agitating for serious change during a period of digital upheaving and cost cutting. They actually have a little info uh, section here just below this paragraph. They kind of go into it later on. Uh, there was apparently a now defunct Facebook 
group called Awesome Assistance. It was a private Facebook group. Uh, there were 438 assistants involved in said group. These are some of the key findings from this 2017 survey. It says that the mean average salary per month at the time was a little under $3,800. The mean average amount of salary spent on living expenses each month was 70% of that. People who got financial aid from their parents, 50.7%. Percentage of people not paid overtime, 32.4%. Per, uh, percentage of people who worked as unpaid interns after college, 50%. Now, um, this apparently gained some notoriety, got some traction here. It says that the plight of Hollywood assistants gained currency last month after Chernobyl screenwriter Craig Mazin and John August, writer of Aladdin, devoted a portion of their podcast, Script Notes, to the subject. The screenwriters, former assistants themselves, were deluged with stories after they asked assistants to write to them about their own experiences. Across the board, writers' assistants, production assistants, agency assistants, studio assistants, and temps told of operating within an immutable system that enabled financial inequity viewing it as part of the job. Uh, continues here that Liz Alper, a TV writer and Writers Guild of America West Board member, recently launched the hashtag PayUpHollywood uh, on Twitter, tackling head-on the rationales given for maintaining the status quo. They, they then created a link where assistants could share their stories anonymously, and apparently they had 74 responses within 24 hours. Um... And they just kind of go into this cyclical behavior of how people are in debt. Uh, they can't really afford the job, but it's kind of the only way to get in. They're discouraged from, um, they're discouraged from filing for overtime or getting overtime. And yet the demands of the job are such that you can't get it done without doing overtime. Then if you complain, you get in trouble. If you do file the, uh, overtime, then, you know, you're not a team player kind of a thing, yada, yada, yada. Um, one of the repped companies that was mentioned in here, they came back and said, that's not true. Um, we actually build in 10 hours of overtime into everybody's weekly checks. And then beyond that, they just need management approval. So, and we're talking about, again, um, writers for shows like Roswell, New Mexico on the CW, Perry Mason on HBO. Um, you know, there are different things, there are different people from different aspects who are no longer assistants saying that, yeah, we kind of got crapped on. Um, one of the things that they're saying is that, of course, industry shifts have kind of made a difference. Uh, this particular key point. Uh, while there is more content being produced than ever, thanks largely to a growing streaming universe, studios and agencies are contending with economic pressures caused by shrinking DVD sales, box office returns, and TV syndication revenues. Shorter seasons, longer hiatuses, and the increase in limited series have greatly impacted residuals and opportunities while introducing more financial insecurity. Um, you know, so we've got, uh, Kevin Cloudon. He's an executive director of the Milken Institute Centers for Regional Economics. He says, quote, the main thing to keep in mind is the fact that being an assistant in Hollywood has been viewed as a mechanism to get access to and basically be a producer, an agent, or become something with a higher paid significant profile. The catch is that it's gotten more expensive to live and work in Hollywood. And with short form shows and quicker productions, there is greater disruption without a guarantee of advancement, end quote there, or end quotes there. Now, they do go on to say, however, that there are people who are really big into um, t uh, TV and movies and stuff who actually did get their start as assistants. I mean, the, you know, very big uh, studio heads and stuff like that have have gone and gotten their jobs in that. So uh, it says here, um, a number of prominent executives, including Endeavor chief and Uber agent Ari Emanuel, Ari Emanuel DreamWorks co-founder David Geffen and Amazon Studios head Jennifer Salky also got or Salk got their starts as assistants. Now, I think it's important to note that much like the baby boomers were able to just go out and get a job and work their way up and 
have a life and then turn around and say, how come you can't do that? I think it's fair to say that in a certain, uh, to a certain degree, the same is true here. These people got their starts in an industry that needed assistance to develop that networking and then everything changed. So it doesn't quite work the way that it used to. On the whole, you kind of getting to see both sides here, right? Um, workers say they're being mistreated. Companies say that they're not mistreating to a certain extent where they are getting feedback from companies. Uh, of course, the industry's changed and life is hard in general. I mean, that is the nature of the beast that is entertainment. It is virtually impossible to make it. And yet people try. Um, and, and it's not to say that you shouldn't try if that is truly your dream. It just simply means to me, you need to go in with your eyes wide open. I think that, um, does, does it mean that it should be inherently okay that you be dumped on and not make it possible for, for you to survive in order to make it? No. But, it's that whole 10,000 people waiting behind you in line who are willing to put up with it that makes it the problem. I don't know. If, it seems to me it's kind of a supply and demand thing. For as long as you're going to have people waiting in line behind you, I don't know what kind of a leg you have to stand on, even if you are justified in what you say. If you're willing to throw yourself down and lay that gauntlet down so that the people behind you can have a better life, then hey, good on you and good for you. But I think the trick is going to be getting the people in line behind you to be like, yeah, I'd much rather have that too. Um it's a complicated issue and one that's not easy to solve. I just thought it was an interesting piece and something that came out today. I'm sorry, a couple days ago. The, the piece was dated 11-2. Uh, we are, of course, recording on the 4th. Um, Tim, thoughts, questions, comments, concerns? I know it's a touchy subject all the way around, but still want to make sure you get a chance to talk about it. Right. Well, it's not just the film industry. I mean, it's assistance... All across the board, I mean, whether if you're, you know, assistant to a to a to a to a a, a, a wealthy person in some kind of nonprofit uh, company organization, um, if you're working at a school, if you're working at a college, if you're doing this, all across the board, a lot of assistants are not getting paid enough, and it stinks. I see it all the time. I have friends out here who are experiencing this very same thing. And again, not all of them are in the industry. So unfortunately, LA is incredibly expensive. Um, you know, if you look hard enough, you can find a decent place to live, especially if you have a roommate and it's not going to hundred percent break the bank. But, you also have the lifestyle to live up to. And when you are an assistant, especially in the Hollywood system, um, oftentimes you're kind of expected to follow that, uh, that, that lifestyle. And it's not necessarily like materialistic things I'm referring to, but your experience to take part in a lot of stuff, be more social. So that means going to bars, going to parties, doing this and doing that, spending money, uh, working overtime without actually getting paid for that overtime. A lot of it builds character and it definitely kind of weeds people out. You know, you, you sift out all of the people that don't want to put in the effort or put in the work that think they're just going to ride by the seat of their coattails and they're going to get a job no matter what. Uh, you also have the people that don't understand that you can get other jobs within the industry. That is not being a producer or director. Um, you can go into different departments. You can be a PA, you know, a production assistant, but then you can go into studio operations. You can go into post-production sound. You can become a, you can go into costumes. You can go into a, a picture editorial. Like there are different facets of the industry that 
or, or excuse me, different avenues within the industry that you can take. That is not that does not necessarily lead you to producer, where you can still move up in the company and make a lot of money. If it is the money as uh, portion, the money aspect, that is the issue. Um, so I I think the only thing that I take issue with are the people who are expecting to stay as an assistant and wanting to get paid more for being an assistant instead of moving, taking that next step, whether if it's again, looking, you know, in, in a different department or calling it quits and moving on from being, uh, in the film industry or the, the TV film industry. So I, I don't know what's crazy. It's kind of like a catch 22 in a way. Um, the industry is growing, so there is a lot of opportunities. But with those opportunities, there's also some saturation and not a lot of crossover. Quickly here, I want to jump into my last piece of news because I am very interested in what you have to say about this, Matt. From the New York Times, uh, actually, before I get into this, Matt, are you familiar with what has been going on with like Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese and Marvel and people upset with what they have to say about Marvel films. I seem to recall it was either Coppola or Scorsese or something or somebody saying that the Marvel movies weren't like, weren't like real movies or something like that. Or they, or they're not part of real cinema or something like that. And People are really pissed because it's like we just spent, you know, billions of dollars on it. So it's got to be real movies. Is that is that what it is? Uh, pretty much. Yes. And okay. people are getting upset by like these little sound bites, these little blurbs that these directors are saying. They're not really explaining. These are I mean, Martin Scorsese has talked about this before. This is not new news. But anyways, uh, this is an op ed by Martin Scorsese, published via the New York Times. Martin Scorsese, I said, Marvel movies aren't cinema, let me explain, published on November 4th, again written by Martin Scorsese, and it says this, When I was in England in early October, I gave an interview to Empire Magazine. I was asked a question about Marvel movies. I answered it. I said that I've tried to watch a few of them and that they're not for me that they seem to me to be closer to theme parks than they are to movies as I've known and loved them throughout my life, and that in the end, I don't think they're cinema. Some people seem to have seized on the last part of my answer, as insulting, or as evidence of hatred for Marvel on my part. If anyone is intent on characterizing my words in that light, there's nothing I can do to stand in the way. Many franchise films are made by people of considerable talent and artistry. You can see it on the screen. The fact that the films themselves don't interest me is a matter of personal taste and temperament. I know that if I were younger, if I'd come of age at a later time, I might have been excited by these pictures and maybe even wanted to make one myself. But I grew up when I did, and I developed a sense of movies, of what they were and what they could be. That was as far from the Marvel Universe as we on Earth are from Alpha Centauri. For me, for the filmmakers I came to love and respect, for my friends who started making movies around the same time that I did, cinema was about revelation, aesthetic, emotional and spiritual revelation. It was about characters, the complexity of people and their contradictory and sometimes paradoxical natures, the way they can hurt one another and love one another and suddenly come face to face with themselves. It was about confronting the unexpected on the screen and in the life it dramatized and interpreted and enlarging the sense of what was possible in the art form. And that was the key for us. It was an art form. There was some debate about that at the time, so we stood up for cinema as an equal to literature or music or dance. And we came to understand that the art could be found in many different places and in just as many forms. Or in the films of Alfred Hitchcock, I suppose you could say that Hitchcock was his own franchise, or that he was our franchise. 
Every new picture was an event. To be in a packed house in one of the old theaters watching Rear Window was an extraordinary experience. It was an event created by the chemistry between the audience and the picture itself, and it was electrifying. And then I'm going to jump down to the end of this op-ed here. So you might ask, what's my problem? Why not just let superhero films and other franchises' films be? The reason is simple. In many places around this country and around the world, franchise films are now your primary choice if you want to see something on the big screen. It's a perilous time in film exhibition, and there are fewer independent theaters than ever. The equation has flipped, and streaming has become the primary delivery system. Still, I don't know a single filmmaker who doesn't want to design films for the big screen to be projected before audiences in theaters. That includes me and I'm speaking as someone who just completed a picture for Netflix. It and it alone allowed us to make The Irishman the way we needed to, and for that I'll always be thankful. We have a theatrical window, which is great. Would I like the picture to play on more big screens for longer periods of time? Of course I would. But no matter whom you make your movie with, the fact is that the screen in most multiplexes are crowded with franchise pictures. And if you're going to tell me that it's simply a matter of supply and demand and giving the people what they want, I'm going to disagree. It's a chicken and egg issue. If people are given only one kind of thing and endlessly sold only one kind of thing, of course they're going to want more of that one kind of thing. But you might argue, can't they just go home and watch anything else they want on Netflix or iTunes or Hulu? Sure. Anywhere but on the big screen where the filmmaker intended her or his picture to be seen. And the article does go on for there. Again, that was a Martin Scorsese op-ed via the New York Times. Martin Scorsese, I said Marvel movies aren't cinema. Let me explain. I thought this was pretty interesting. He understands that people like Marvel movies, and he's not going to take that away from those people. And I definitely agree with them. When it comes from artful cinema, there is a difference between the Avengers in-game and or any of the Avengers movies and, say, The Godfather, for example. And I thought in a very nice way he explains that. But what, what do you think about that, Matt? No, I honestly, I think he summed it up perfectly and succinctly back towards the beginning of the article. If I had been born at a different time, I might have a different opinion. I, I I don't think it is unfair to say that someone's tastes can be centered around how they grew up and perceived things. Not to mention, in sp specifically Scorsese's case, he's also had a massive influence on the things younger people see today. You know, there's a part of the re part of the reason that there is a way to. I really and truly believe that part of the reason that you could have Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 have, I'm Mary Poppins, y'all, and at the same time almost want to shed a little tear when Yondu dies, is because thanks to people like Scorsese, we have the ability to cross genres, mash things up, and put certain notes of seriousness, of deference, of drama in an otherwise action comedy film. And we have people like Scorsese to thank for that because it wasn't always done that way. It wasn't always seen as mainstream or if there were things that ebb and, ebbed and flowed. So we experience it in a different way than he did. And he was in a position to influence how we feel about it. So I just, honestly, he's got a different mindset because he's truly from a different time. And I think, and I, and I don't think it requires anything else other than that. If you're still going to be butthurt about it, then, you know, life is going to be hard for you. That's pretty much all I can say. Well, I, there is definitely a clear distinct between even Gardens of the Galaxy and, say, The Godfather. Again, 
I'm not trying to say, and I well, I know I get that, and that by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm not saying that, and I'm not saying that Guardians of the Galaxy is a bad movie, but there, and I know we've talked about this before, and I know I'm sure I've brought it up before, but like with the last Avengers movie, did Robert Downey Jr. give a good performance? Of course he did. It was a nice send off to Tony Stark, but because he had that really nice dramatic moment at the end, does that automatically make him an Academy Awards contender for best actor? And there seems to be, not a stigma, but there seems to be a thing with a lot of younger people now, they look at something like that and they automatically think, that's it. Why not? When there are other you know, matters at hand, there are other things to evaluate and to look at, I suppose. But And, and again, I, I do feel it is incumbent upon me to stress not trying to compare Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 with anything along the lines of The Godfather or anything like that. I was just merely using that as an example of showing how you can have a serious moment that is well-crafted in an otherwise different type of film. Sure. Um, and why we have Scorsese to thank for that. So uh, anyway, cool. All right. So then that does conclude the news portion of our show. I guess now we should jump into the movies. Yeah. Yeah. Then let's do it, folks. It's the movie. <laughs> And due to, uh, I guess, us not understanding how to read or some other kind of thing, uh, we're not going to have the Irishman this week. Uh, we are still going to have the lighthouse. So, um, I guess... Here's the lighthouse? What made your last keeper leave? He believed that there was some enchantment in the light. Went mad, he did. Tall tales. Bob. Bob. What? sounded confused there well because i mean it's not a confusing movie whatsoever it's rather straightforward it, well no but i mean i actually went back because i after after watching this movie you know me in trailers i don't watch I, I try not to watch trailers if i can help it sure after watching this movie i went back and watched the trailer i don't know if i don't think audio only does this trailer justice so that's why i'm kind of like i have no idea what you're gonna do here so i guess i'll just be pleasantly surprised on thursday um but for those of you who are just as confused as i might have been uh 2019 american psychological horror film this is directed and produced by roger eggerts i'm sorry robert eggerts he's the guy who did the witch or the witch whatever uh also by a24 that i thought was a really cool movie this one, however, uh, stars Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson only, uh, unless you would like to um, count um, intermittent visions of a mermaid. I suppose you could do that, too. Uh, she was played by uh, Valeria Carman, uh, Karaman. Um, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. Um 
Young young Ephraim Winslow has come to do a contract job as a wiki, uh, which would be a lighthouse keeper in the 1890s parlance or slang. The big standard lifer lighthouse keeper uh, is Thomas Wake, played by Willem Dafoe. Uh, basically, they're just supposed to spend the next four weeks together. It's just kind of a simple contract job. And a fairy will eventually come and pick up young Ephraim uh, to send him on his way to whatever else is going to happen. Uh, unfortunately, their time spent together is basically just a descent into madness. Um, where... <laughs> You don't exactly get a horror movie, per se. I would probably argue it's a psychological thriller, not exactly a horror movie. But it's, by God, if it's not a horror movie that knows a good fart joke when it sees one. <laughs> it reminded me of my dad. <laughs> um, and it, this movie is just... Okay, um... Honestly, this movie is literally what you make of it. Okay. Um, it is there. I mean, you're, you're watching the movie itself unfold. It's not that you can necessarily deny the movie unfolding in front of you, but what you want to pull from the symbolism of the movie, uh, you, there, there's really, if you are paying attention to the subtext of it, there's like mythology behind this. And, and I don't mean just mythos. I mean true like Greek mythology behind some of this stuff. And it's still just symbolism. Uh, you, you begin to kind of wonder what the omens could actually mean, the visions that actually occur. Um, you've got the one-eyed seagull that is in here that is a big, huge part of the movie. Maybe, maybe they should have given the seagull a credit. I don't know. Um, it's, but but the various outcomes of these journeys into madness shared by both Wake and Winslow, Ephraim uh, Winslow, sorry, is Robert Pattinson's character's name. Thomas Wake is Willem Dafoe's character's name. Uh, and, and they're both going insane. What I thought was so interesting, though, is that there is just this, throughout the entire film, there is this amazing dynamic of shared experience that humans must have in a lot of ways it's not to mean it's not to say that you can't do it or it can't be done or they're not ever outliers but i think it's pretty fair to say that humans on the whole are social creatures that must have some kind of interaction and as much as it is very rapidly apparent, despite madness or no madness, that Wake and Winslow pretty much hate each other, they still have to interact. And and they don't have to because of the job that they do, even though that's part of it. They have to because they need the interaction, which leads to some really interesting conversations, some really interesting drinking I mean, for the love of God, there's drinking upon drinking, and they even go to make it out of kerosene when there's, you know, why has all the rum gone, to quote Johnny Depp, right? Um, there's just so much intricacy and layering in this, in the dynamic of this relationship, but at the same time, there's, they're both, it's pretty apparent that they're both batshit crazy. But then again, it's all in what you make of it, especially as the movie progresses and ultimately by the time you leave the movie theater. It's what you make of it. Um, I think probably the coolest thing about this movie, though, is... Uh, most people will immediately be able to tell that it was shot in black and white, but I think it will not dawn on you, at least not right away... That the aspect ratio, because of the, they did it on original 35 millimeter film, uh, the aspect ratio is 
uh, it's one one by one six. Am I saying that right, Tim? Yeah. Well, okay. Um, it is not a four by nine. It's not a, a sixteen by nine. It's not widescreen. It's literally. Uh, for those of you, perhaps the easiest way to remember, if you think back way back when to Blair Witch, um, it's just kind of a simple square almost in the middle of the screen. Um, it's excellent in terms of all, not really feeding into the claustrophobia of it all, which there is that aspect of it too, but it literally sets you inside the world of lighthouse keepers on a small island in 18, in the late 1890s, in the early, or the late 19th century. I don't, and I think that's an amazing choice. I think it's an amazing choice by Eggers to do that. Um, and yet, the, I don't know, I just, it's just so much interesting stuff going on. It's so batshit crazy. It's so insane, but it's so incredibly enjoyable and indelible. And I think it's a movie that you can watch and see something every, something different almost every time you watch it. Um, yeah, I, I actually had to do a double check. Um, of the new movies that we have watched this year. This is the only five-star movie I've given, five-star rating I've given all year. Now, we did some Ray Harryhausen stuff, and we did some that dancing stuff. There got a couple of fives got tossed into that, but those were, those were special runs that we did. Um, and I'm not taking anything away from those films, but of the actual movies that came out this year, this is the only five-star movie I've given, and we've only got about six weeks left. So, you need to see this movie. And I don't care if you are not into that. You need to see this movie. I, I would even argue that even if you walk out of this movie theater going, what the hell did I just watch? You are still going to be the better for it. See this movie. Five stars. Bring us home, Tim. I hated this movie. 1.5. And that's all I'm going to say. Wow. I'm totally kidding. Okay, I thought mate, you know, it ha- it happened once before with the the drummer, the 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 drummer oh, tickets. Yes, it happened once before. I thought maybe it happened again. So, uh, oh, that you I loved, loved Whiplash, Whiplash and I didn't, didn't like it. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't like it. Yeah, so I was like I was kind of blown away. I'm like, "Oh my god. Two times in 8 years, but I guess it happens." Oh, okay. So seriously, what would you think? So going back to uh, the framing of the film, I really liked that framing uh, because it looks like a silent film, especially with it being in black and white. Uh, More importantly, or more specifically, (laughs) a silent German film. Uh, It also gives the feeling... it, it It also gives the film this feeling of claustrophobic as well uh, which is very important for the audience to feel that way because you're stranded on this island this rocky rocky island with these two characters surrounded by water and you can i mean the movie is so atmospheric you can almost hear the fog itself rolling in um it's absolutely wonderful and i loved hearing that horn the fog horn and when you're listening to it you can just feel right along with him, Robert Pattinson just going freaking nuts. <laughs> it's a visually striking film with its dreary black and white palette, which lends to the overall effect of the, of the film a great... Uh, 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 um, in a great way. The performances are fantastic. The story elements are very interesting. The costumes, the dialect, there was never a dull moment in the film. Plenty of confusing moments, but never really a dull moment. And 
with a review like this, you would expect me to give it a five as well, but I can't. I have to give it a four because nothing bugs me more than a movie where I have to go home and immediately do some research. Because I had a lot of questions, and I understood, especially when mermaids are coming into play, and especially when, say, Willem Dafoe might represent some kind of, you know, mythical creature of sorts, a god, even. Um, you, you, you need a... Uh, one, it, one becomes curious as to how this film ties in with all that mythic stuff. Uh, so I went back and did all the research, and I found out that the film has something to do with Poseidon. Uh, not Poseidon, but like Promethe Prometheus and, um, and, and Zeus even, and Robert Pattinson was this one Greek character, and uh, Willem Dafoe is this other Greek character, and then all this crazy weird stuff happens, and what happens at the very end of the movie, which I'm not going to say because I don't want to spoil it, but it's a very graphic image, and you just wonder, how did we end up at that moment? How did this character end up in this particular bind, even? Uh, I mean, if you go back and you read these Greek stories, it makes sense. But when you watch the movie itself, it does not. And Matt, maybe you can correct me, but I can't remember any part, and not one part or multiple parts in the movies where any bit of dialogue is given that could lead you to think that this actually makes complete sense. Even if you, like me, not familiar at all with some of these tales, these of, of folklore, um, even if you're trying to analyze the film, you can't understand what this folklorish imagery means. Um, but hey, well, I, I, it's a beautiful yeah, movie. I would, I would definitely say that, yes, there, there is in fact nothing in the film that gives it away in terms of the dialogue. I think there's enough imagery that will, that would clue people in. But again, I think that's where the beauty of the film is that if you want to go back and figure out, wait a minute, this has to mean something. What could it mean? And then you discover the Poseidon link and everything fine. But at the same time, you could also, you, you could also even invoke ring theory into this, into the movie. Um, you could, you could say the movie is cyclical. You could say that the movie is thought provoking. You could say the movie isn't meant to make sense because XYZ. And I think that's where the, that, that's truly the gift that keeps on giving about this movie is that you can see what you want to see. And quite possibly, like you did mention in your, in your review, multiple viewings. I mean, I might be able to pick up on other things. Um, that's a very good possibility. Um, and don't get me wrong, this is still a four out of five. It's a good film. I just don't like a movie where it doesn't make sense unless you know more backstory of, of, of the film. And, I mean, as for this first viewing, I I personally didn't see or experience enough of that backstory. Not, not enough of that was given to me for some of this imagery to make, uh, to make total sense because the movie doesn't really play as a hundred percent like a fantasy. Um, it doesn't play a hundred percent like it's a, it's a true descent into madness. So is it a fantasy or is it a tale of two or maybe one crazy person, you know? So, there's just, it's kind of a mixed bag as to what this movie is providing, at least me, or trying to provide me. Uh, so yeah, four out of five. Very, very cool. All right, so then next week, uh, we are going to be doing uh, more news for our bonus segment. And we are going to be looking into Dolomite Is My Name from Netflix. And we are going to give a shot at trying to do Dr. Sleep as well. And so, without further ado, 
I believe it is now time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. You set him up and I'll knock him back, Lloyd. One by one. White man's burden, Lloyd, my man. White man's burden. Say, Lloyd, it seems I'm temporarily light. <laughs> How's my credit in this joint, anyway? Your credit's fine, Mr. Torrance. That's swell. I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. You were always the best of them. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Thank you for saying so. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we have, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. And, of course, comment for the information super highway track on Tim on Twitter, if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite on Stitch Radio, as well as track us down on the old Spotify and Google Play and other podcast directories. If you want to support the show, head on over to Patreon.com and check us out over there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Robert Pattinson, I get to say this. I'm like a compulsive eater. I'm going to be so fat when I'm older, it's ridiculous. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, farewell, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.